Greetings, my good people. How are you? What is happening? What is going on? How are you doing out there? Hope everybody's feeling fantastic, that your week is off to a tremendous start here on a holiday Monday as we celebrate the life of Dr. Martin Luther King and at the same time deliver everything that's happening in the world of sports here by yours truly, none other, Jay Reels, the host of the Jay Reels podcast. For my first timers, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for downloading and listening to what it is I have to say about what goes on in the world of sports. And for those who have been banging with me for now 109 episodes, I welcome you guys back. Again, it's a Monday, January the 20th, in the year of our Lord, 2020. The J Reels What's the Deal segment? That's right. What do you expect here over the course of the next hour here on the podcast? Well, it goes as follows. Did anything happen in Major League Baseball over the last week? Ah, yes. The cheating scandal that emanated in Houston and now reverberates here in the Northeast, whether it's in Boston and here in New York. Boy, I tell you, there's a lot to chew on there, including why I thought it was smart for the Mets to let go of Carlos Beltran, whether it was a mutual agreement, that's another story, but I thought it was the right thing to do. I'll get into that all later on. Also, what's happening in the NHL as we had a seventh coaching change? Seven. If this was any other sport, people would be wondering what the heck is going on with this particular league, but it's the NHL, it kind of flies under the radar, but seven coaching changes before the All-Star break is a little bit too much, so I'll touch on that, as well as everything else that's happening on this busy Monday. We have Australian Open kicked off yesterday. Conor McGregor, yes, I didn't watch the fight, but it was 40 seconds, so if you blinked, you missed it. I'll touch on that. Anything that's happening in the NBA, college basketball, boy, I tell you, just a ton to get into here, so let's get right at it, as now we're down to the final two. That's right. Championship Sunday is in our rearview mirror, and now we can look ahead for the long, laborious two-week layoff between now and February 2nd, where the Super Bowl will take place down in Miami, and it's unfortunate because we have a matchup here that I'm sure a lot of people are salivating and looking forward to when you look at the KC offense and the San Francisco defense, obviously being the prime highlight matchup, but we'll talk about how both of these teams got here, and then I'm not going to preview the game. I'll get into some storylines in reference to what you'll hear over the course of the next two weeks, and also give you just a slight touch on my thoughts on the game. But we'll save the preview for next Monday because obviously we have a lot of time between now and then. But when you look at both of these games yesterday, and you pretty much had, out of the eight quarters, a good two and a half quarters of the first game, and then everything else was just go to sleep. I mean, you could have cleaned your apartment, you could have made a five-course meal, and you wouldn't have missed out on anything. And it's sad because when we get down to these final few games of an NFL season, not that we could look at every game as being thrilling or every game as being nail-biter down to the finish like we saw last year in the championship games, whether we had the controversy down in New Orleans with the Rams and Saints or the overtime thriller at Arrowhead where the Patriots beat the Chiefs. And we know what happened in the Super Bowl after that. So as much as we want to look forward to having that type of drama having that type of of edge-of-your-seat controversy, whatever it may be, we did not get that in either of these two games. But in the first game, you did get a very interesting start by the Titans as they were able to move the ball more through the air than the ground, which was a surprise. And to the tune of a 10-0 lead right out of the gate and even 17-7. And after the 10-0 start where the Titans looked like they were able to turn the ball over there on that Ryan Tannehill pass to... Brashard Breland, who looked like he had it intercepted at first, but upon review, it was overturned. So that certainly sustained the drive to the point where they actually went for it after a third and two stop. They went for it on fourth and two, where they got the pass over to the wide receiver there in the flat for about three yards. And that was critical because Mike Vrabel and company knew that they could not settle for field goals in this game. 
And bad as it was on the first drive, where they only ended up getting three when they were pretty much down first and goal, for them to get the six there with the touchdown by Derrick Henry, who had his chunks in the first half, which certainly was not a factor like he was in the prior two postseason games. And then for the Chiefs to finally get off the deck to get their drive going, that they uh, scored a touchdown there on that jet sweep to Tyree Kill. 10-7, to and on that drive, they had a critical fourth down themselves where they converted to Travis Kelsey, and of course, they were going to go for it. They were at their, I believe, their Titan 28-yard line, so there was no way they were going to kick a field goal there. So now at 10-7, where the Titans get the ball, and they're moving the ball downfield to the tune of a nine-minute drive, it ends up being in the hands of, of all people, the left tackle, who was an eligible receiver, I believe David Kelly, who caught the ball, did a little backflip somersault to complete the play, and at 17-7... I'm sure there's a part of people that are thinking that, well, if the Titans could continue to play at this pace, now, of course, you can't expect nine-minute drives every time out. But considering that the KC defense, which nobody's going to be confused to the 2000 Ravens, the KC defense had been out there, it seemed like all of that first half up until that point, you kind of thought to yourself that this could be an opportunity for the Titans if they could somehow, some way, slow down this chief offense They had a touchdown on the prior drive. If they could somehow get them to a three and out or maybe let them convert a couple first downs and get the ball back at 17-7, then who knows? As you're heading into the half, if the Titans were able to move the chains and maybe even get some points, then you're looking at a major upset here. But once they got the ball back, they were able to move the ball at will, and it almost seemed like the Chiefs could do whatever it takes down the field, whether it was through the arm of Patrick Mahomes or even with the legs. As he converted on a lot of first downs with his legs, And then he gets that one touchdown pass to Tyree Kill in the seam, which was just a beautiful pass and made it 17-14. And then after that point, the Titan offense just went on vacation. They were not to be seen or heard again. Now, we understand late in the game, they were able to move the ball. They had the fake punt and, of course, punched it in the end zone there late at 35-24. But when first down, handoff to Derrick Henry stuffed, for one yard, another handoff stuffed, and then Deion Lewis had that one catch in the flat that he only got five yards. And then right there, you kind of knew with about two, a little over two minutes to go, right before the half, you kind of wondered whether or not that the Mahomes and company, whether the offensive machine and the juggernaut that they can be, was going to be put into overdrive to kind of not necessarily seal the deal, but to make that statement to say, okay, we put spotted you 17-7. We got close to three points, and then now here we are. We're going to take over the game, and pretty much that's what they did on the legs of Patrick Mahomes to the point when he had that touchdown run. I'm sure a lot of the defensive players on the Titans thought that he was going to give himself up. It looked like as he was getting to the sideline, it looked like he was going to step out of bounds once he got the first down, but he tiptoed his way through there, cut inside, broke a couple of tackles, which was just atrocious on the Titans' part. They couldn't bring him down until he was crossed the goal line into the end zone. And at 21-17, you kind of thought to yourself right then and there, like, oh, this is where the Chiefs are going to take off, run away, and hide, and punch their ticket to Super Bowl 54. When the third quarter started, not much going on. Chiefs got the ball, didn't really do anything. Same for the Titans. In fact, the Titans had a break where the Chief defense, they were actually jumped off off sides quite a few times in this game, especially in the first half, which led to first downs. And here, they started with a first and five, where they rushed Derrick Henry, for four yards then he got stuffed on a second and one stuffed on a third and one but at that point there was a hold so it brought back and pretty much after that you did not see the titan offense for the rest of the game because then they punted and then at that point that's when the chiefs went ahead on their own long drive for them 
Usually they're the type of offense that goes five plays, 80 yards in about two and a half minutes. But here it was, 13 plays, 73 yards, seven minutes and eight seconds off the clock. Damian Williams off the edge there into the end zone at 28-17 in the fourth quarter. And uh, that was the icer. We get that the Sammy Watkins play, that was the one that pretty much capped it off where it set Arrowhead into a frenzy. Back-to-back AFC Championship games, actually the first one in that building last year, but they were able to celebrate this year. Last year, obviously leaving that building with a bitter pill, and then here they are, really on the cusp at 35-17 to finally go into the Super Bowl. First time in 50 years since Super Bowl Four when they beat the Vikings. And like I said earlier, the Titans had a fake punt which were able to move the ball downfield. They got a late touchdown there to the tight end from Harvard. And that was all she wrote. Now, there was one, maybe the last drama play of the game, where with, what was it, 3.59 to go, they had a third and 10, the Chiefs, deep in their zone. And Mahomes was scrambling around. He throws a long pass on the right sideline. And interfering, Miko Hardman, excuse me, on the play was uh, Taheem Brock, who... It, I understand it's a tough call. It's one of those calls where you wish the game could have been at least a little bit extended to see if the Titans, now their Titans weren't going to win the game, but it would have been a little, it would have had a little bit more drama to this game. But once Brock interfered with Hardman and they got the first down, uh, that was pretty much it. And then the Chiefs finally were able to raise the Lamar Hunt trophy in dedication to the, uh, the founding father of the Kansas City Chiefs. Clark Hunt, of course, now is the Chairman, the son of a one Lamar Hunt, of course, the longtime owners of the Kansas City Chiefs, and congratulations to them, congratulations to Andy Reid for making the Super Bowl, obviously this will be his second appearance, remember he was a coach of the Philadelphia Eagles back in Super Bowl 39 when they faced against the New England Patriots, so here they are, Andy Reid now has one more mountain to climb to finally get that elusive Super Bowl victory, it's 29 playoff appearances, And let's see if he comes home with the trophy. And it's going to be a tall order, which I'll get to a little bit later on. He's going to play a Niner team. But my takeaways from this is the Chiefs and their offense. We know the weapons that they have. You know, Kelsey had a quiet game. And Sammy Watkins had the big game. In fact, Watkins, it's interesting, they mentioned on the broadcast. In the opening game against Jacksonville, he had three touchdowns and God knows how many yards catching, you know, through the air. Receiving, that is. And then here it is. It took from week one to now the... AFC Championship game to get his next touchdown. So, obviously, a long time between touchdown scores for him. Tyreek Hill obviously had his fingerprints on this game where he had a couple of touchdowns, as I mentioned, the jet sweep and then the touchdown to make it 17-14. And when you look at it from a whole, even with all the weapons that they have on this team, you know, Demarcus Robinson's a guy that made a couple of plays. But the Chiefs right now, as long as they, you figure that they're going to put up the Offensive firepower that the that they're capable of doing. But when you look at their defense, that's what's going to be the key moving forward. And yesterday, they did a magnificent job slowing down Travis Henry. You kind of wonder, excuse me, I said Travis Henry. I'm thinking the old running back from the uh, Titans and also the Buffalo Bills. Derrick Henry, my pardon. When the Titans were not unable to get anything going after 17-7, you could see maybe they probably abandoned the run a little bit. You know, they had to play catch up. They had to throw the ball. But it wasn't if they were down by three scores until very late in the game. And give credit to Steve Spagnuolo and what he did on the defensive side. Because we all know the Chiefs, despite them playing better toward the end of the regular season and then so far in this postseason, even though they spotted the Texans 24 points last week, but they certainly have done the job here. And they're going to have one more monumental task to slow down that Niner running game. 
And that's going to be obviously one of the big storylines going into the Super Bowl to see whether or not the Niner defense will slow down the chief offense, but at the same time, the run game of the Niners with the defense that will be deployed by the Chiefs. So that's what we have there for the first game. And uh, when you look at the second game, oh, I mean, what is there to talk about? This game, when you look at the final score, the Niners put up 37 points again on the Packers, the same amount that they put up in November on that Sunday night game to that 37-8 victory that uh, took place back in, I believe it was the Sunday after Thanksgiving or maybe before, whenever it was. But the Niners just imposed their will pretty much from the opening snap. We get that they were three and out right from the jump, but at the same time, just the way that they were able to run the ball and move the chains. And when you have Jimmy Garoppolo pretty much through three and a half quarters throw eight passes, that's all you need to know about the game. The kid Raheem Mostert, who was cut by a million teams, undrafted. I believe the Eagles were the first team to pick him up, and then he bounced around, whether it was Miami, Baltimore, Cleveland, even the Jets, believe it or not. So now he's found found the home here in San Francisco where Tevin Coleman early in the game looked like he did something with his shoulder. Don't know what the results are. Who knows if he's going to be eligible to play in this game in two weeks. But for Mostert to come in there and just run roughshod over a packed defense, well, let's face it, uh, they're paper tigers. We understand they have good young talent on the defensive side, especially in the secondary, Darnell Savage and Jair Alexander. But nobody's going to think of these Packer teams as the Super Bowl team of 10 years ago or even the Super Bowl team back in 96 when you had the likes of Reggie White and Leroy Butler and players of that elk. So certainly not to be confused with those teams. But when the Niners, 29 carries, 220 yards, four touchdowns, and in the first half alone was 14-160 for three touchdowns for a one Raheem Mostert. I mean, that's all you need to know about the game. And if there was ever a point in the game where at 17-0, despite the fact that the Niners were just chugging along, and here come the Packers, they're moving the ball, they get past midfield, they're in Niner territory, and then the exchange from the center to Rodgers, the fumble, and that pretty much, that's when you knew the game was going to be over. Niners then moved the ball, they kicked the field goal there, and then they got the touchdown there after the pick by Aaron Rodgers, which was behind the wide receiver, and it was just good night the lights. This was a game that was nothing really to report, nothing really to even uh, zero drama. The only drama was after the opening coin toss, who's going to get the ball first? And even with the Niners going three and out, maybe just maybe if the Packers would have put some points on the board, not to say they would have won the game, but at least it would have been a little bit interesting. You didn't even get that in the performance yesterday by the Packers, which was just pathetic. I mean, there's no other way to slice it. And it also leads to, well, I'll get to that in a second as far as the Packers are concerned. But when you look at the Niners... To me, watching those games of the past, especially with Mike Shanahan, the father of the Niner coach, Kyle Shanahan, watching those Denver teams of Terrell Davis, and even after that, when you had the likes of, remember these names, NFL and Bronco fans, Mike Anderson, Orlandis Gary, Tatum Bell, when you had guys like that rush for a thousand yards and that offensive scheme, especially with the way they block, and of course the talent of one Kyle Juszczyk, the fullback. For the Niners and of course George Kittle who everybody looks at him as a pass catcher but who did not even have you didn't even think he played in the game as far as the passing game is concerned and obviously when Jimmy Garoppolo is only going to throw for 10 times in the game I mean how many times he's going to target his tight end but Kittle was such a factor on the in the run game and with those blocking schemes going back to like I said Mike Shanahan his dad in those days in Denver uh, they're going to be just tough to deal with 
And they don't have the sexiest offensive line. We understand the left tackle. Everybody knows Joe Staley. And they have, obviously, a very stout offensive line. Very underrated, too. Because when you think of offensive lines in the league, obviously, the first team you're going to look at is the Dallas Cowboys. Also, the Oakland Raiders have had a good offensive line over the last few years. The Steelers have had a very good offensive line. But the Niners, and certainly what they've done this year, and obviously yesterday, just dominated the line of scrimmage. And when you're able to push the Packers around, and again, like I said, they're paper tigers in my book, as far as defensively is concerned. But the Niners just ran roughshod. What could you say? I mean, that's all there was to it. And then the one thing, when you tie in both of these teams, before I get to the Packers, the one thing that you tie into San Francisco and Kansas City, just look at how they got here. And all you got to do is just look back to the final weekend of the regular season, where the Kansas City Chiefs were beating up on the LA Chargers and looking like they were going to be a three seed. And then the turn of events in Foxborough, where the Miami Dolphins, in the final seconds, Ryan Fitzpatrick throws that touchdown to uh, Gasicki, the tight end, to take a 27 24 lead. And they go on and win that game to propel the Chiefs to the two seed in the conference where obviously they didn't have to worry about going or having the home game and then having to go on the road for two to make it to a possible Super Bowl. They had some home cooking and then with some help, obviously by the Titans because knocking off the Baltimore Ravens, them not having to have to go to Baltimore to play an AFC title game. They had it home cooking. They had a Titan team where a lot of people thought they could play the upset card and they looked like they were about to do so for a quarter and a half but here they are thanks to the Miami Dolphins pretty much because if not who knows that's not to say they wouldn't have made it to the Super Bowl but it certainly would have been a lot rougher road and the same could be said for the San Francisco 49ers if it wasn't for the tackle by Dre Greenlaw at the goal line of the tight end John Hollister if somehow some way he would have gotten to the end zone and Seattle would have won the game they would have won the division now they wouldn't have gotten a one seed they would have been the three seed in the NFC, but the San Francisco 49ers would have had to go on the road to Philadelphia, which they probably would have beaten, and then they would have had to go to New Orleans, which for all intents and purposes would have been the rematch. Oh, as a matter of fact, no, that wouldn't have been the case because the Vikings were the sixth seed, so they would have gone to New Orleans, and then San Francisco had to go to Green Bay. Now, of course, we're never going to know how the soul shakes down, but my point is, is that when you look at the events of what happened that final Sunday of the NFL season, if Miami didn't beat New England... And if that tackle wasn't made at the goal line, this could be a much different script here for the 2019 NFL playoffs. But instead, I think we have the two best teams, the two best teams standing. Because as much as people want to say the Ravens, but we all know a healthy Patrick Mahomes and all the expectations coming into the season after what happened on the heels of last season, a lot of people thought that the Chiefs would be the representative of the AFC. And rightfully so, here they are, ready to go up against San Francisco down in Miami. And also, well, we'll get to the storylines in a second because I, I want to get to that. But the one thing, if you're a Packer fan this morning, and I know this may be a little bit harsh, I get that, but it has to be brought out. Now, I have nothing against Aaron Rodgers. I love the way he throws the football. He is a, he's an all-time great, without question. I love watching him play. I think if you're a football fan, you have to absolutely marvel at the talent that he has, whether he just throws the football, how effortlessly he does, and he's able to scramble and throw on the run, etc. But the greatness of Aaron Rodgers, I'm not going to say it's overrated, but it certainly can come to question that he's been in four NFC title games. And he won the first one, which was in Chicago. 
10 years ago and against a quarterback by the name of Caleb Haney. People say, Caleb Haney? Who the heck is that guy? Well, remember, he was the guy that took over for Jay Cutler in that game, and that was at Soldier Field in the 2010 season. And for Rodgers to get over that hump, to finally make it to a Super Bowl as a sixth seed, and of course, we all know Super Bowl MVP as he beat the Pittsburgh Steelers there down in AT&T Stadium in Dallas. Well, since then, he's been to the game three times, and three times in the last five years. He lost a brutal game in Seattle, which I understand was not his fault. They had a 19-9 lead with about, what was it, two and a half minutes to go, and they had no business losing the game. We all know a lot of it was on the onside kick. I forgot who the tight end was. It wasn't Richard Rodgers, but he fumbled. Obviously, he didn't get the whole grasp of the ball, tipped up in the air, Seattle recovered, and then they kicked the field goal, and then obviously won the game in overtime. They lost a game in Atlanta, which... We understand Atlanta was their year. Matt Ryan, they were flying high. That was going to be a tough spot. But the Falcons were able to beat that, beat the Packers and go on to lose just brutally in the Super Bowl, as we all know. And then now you look at this game where, again, the Niners were the better team. We get that. But you would only hope, and they have some offensive talent. But the one thing is, is that if you're the greatest quarterback of your generation, and I understand that there's going to be the people in Foxborough, hey, Tom Brady, all right, okay, we get that pipe down but we all know that Aaron Rodgers is a guy that is well renowned throughout the sport obviously one of the top handful of quarterbacks or the two handfuls we'll say and for him to not be able to get over this hump and now he's 36 years of age and not to say that by any stretch of imagination that his career is now long in the tooth and he's ready to go off into the sunset but it certainly makes you question that for a guy who won a quarterback early in his career and has not been able to get back and we understand it's all not on him but you also got to remember too, in that was a 15-1 season that he lost at home to a 9-7 Giant team. So that has to play into it. And again, this isn't the day to kill Rodgers because again, it's not all on him. But when people talk about the greatness and everything that he's been able to do and accomplish so on and so forth, well, yeah, he does have the one Super Bowl and he could certainly, that's a, trust me, Dan Marino could wish he could have that Super Bowl. And it's a couple other quarterbacks on our list. It's a short list of great players, great quarterbacks who've never won a Super Bowl. But Dan Marino's one to be like, hey, I'll take Aaron Rodgers' career. But at the same time, for everything that's been ballyhooed and all the accolades and the bouquet of verbal flowers that are thrown at his feet, he has not been able to get back there. And even on this post-game press conference, he did say that he feels good about his team moving forward. He likes the pieces that are on his team. And now it's just a matter of having that other opportunity, he feels he's going to get that. Well, I hope he does for his sake, but it's just interesting how much props that he gets, and deservedly so, but at the same time, in these big moments, in these big games, and even with his stats yesterday, 31 for 39, over 300 yards, we understand he threw that bad pick, and he was very efficient as far as his percentage is concerned, but overall, he did not have a great game. And I understand when you look at the numbers at the end of the day, you probably think, Jay Reels, how does that reflect that? Well, Look closely and you'll see. You're down 27 nothing at halftime, and you're an all-time great. That's all. That's all I gotta say. You gotta be able to produce. You gotta be able to put up there, and he didn't do that. And obviously, a lot of those numbers, a lot of those points came in the second half of that game when they're already down by three scores. So there you have it. And as far as the Niners are concerned, they're going to be. They're not even the favorite as of right now. They're actually one and a half point underdogs to the Chiefs because the Chiefs are the AFC team or the home team, I should say. And not that that matters because, of course, it's at a neutral site. 
But for what it's worth, I guess they're looking at the Chiefs and how Mahomes and even to a certain extent, maybe their defense, how they're performing, where maybe with the Niners, yes, we've seen that in the running game, but I don't know. Whatever it is, when you look at both teams, the Niners are the more complete team. They're a lot more complete on both sides of the ball, lines of scrimmage. Obviously, the quarterback is the advantage on the Chiefs. That goes without saying. And they have more weapons because even though the Niners have Emmanuel Sanders, who's been in the Super Bowl when he was with the Broncos, and also Debo Samuel, the rookie who's obviously performed very well here in his first year in the league. And you're going to look at what Mostert did yesterday. And obviously Kittle's an all-pro. But at the same time, they're just not as explosive. And we obviously we haven't seen Jimmy G throw the ball over the lot here so far this postseason. So that's another thing. Whereas we know Mahomes could throw the ball 50 times and he could pr- pretty much rack up 50 points in his sleep. So that's what you have there. And as far as the storylines going up into this game... I guess, there's, I mean, there's quite a few when you think about it. Not only just the, as I mentioned at the top, the KC offense versus San Francisco defense. You know, Andy Reid and his quest for the Super Bowl that he's been, obviously he's been eluding his whole career. Actually, the last Niners Super Bowl win was down in Miami when they beat the Chargers there, Super Bowl 29. So for nostalgic sake, who knows, maybe the Niner fan, they could you know chew on that for the next 13 days or so. We know about Kyle Shanahan being back at this spot, this time as a head coach, of course, where three years ago he was an offensive coordinator. We know how that unfolded down in uh, Houston, Super Bowl 51 against the Patriots as a member of the Atlanta Falcons. D. Ford facing his uh, former team, who was just there last year. Obviously in KC, we all know the infamous offsides on the Brady interception, which kept the drive alive. And then obviously we know what happened from that point on. And, I mean, that's what you have so far. I mean, that's, those are going to be the top storylines going in. And as far as just a little, I'm not even going to get into a preview, but just a couple of early thoughts about the game itself. Now, we know the KC offense versus the San Francisco defense is going to be fascinating from that regard. And then also, when you look at the run game against the Chiefs, and the Chiefs did very well against the likes of Derrick Henry there yesterday. But the Niner offense is a lot different. The Niner offense isn't just a type of offensive line that is just going to punch you in the mouth. They punch you in the mouth with some power, but it's more finesse. Because when you look at those blocking schemes that I mentioned dating back to the days of Mike Shanahan, and they are very simple techniques. And hey, I'm not an offensive line coach to say the least, but I've watched these teams over the years. And the thing is, is that the Niners, they deploy a lot different style when it comes to running the ball. Obviously, there are a lot of pitches, and when you think about those old Bronco teams, it was more or less that stretch run where it stretches the field to the, whether it's the short end or to the long end, and then they find that seam, and then they go up the seam for you know, 10, 15, 20 yards. Well, this offense is a little bit more simpler than that, but it pretty much has the foundation of what Mike Shanahan did back in his days at Denver to the tune of the back-to-back Super Bowls, and even after that with the likes of like I mentioned, those running backs that you never heard of that had one-hit wonders, whether it's Orlando's Gary or Tatum Bell. I mean, please, you could have me at running back for the Niners, and I could probably rush for 150 yards in a game because that's the type of schemes that they run there. It's just not typical that you see for whether it's the Cowboy offensive line or even some of the offensive lines in the past from teams that used to love to run the ball and pound the rock. It's definitely not like that. It's a lot different. They certainly use their personnel in the right way, including the fullback and obviously the tight end, almost like an old school style, as opposed to just having the five offensive line just do their job. So that's something that to, to look out for, especially 
I, I think when it comes to what the Chiefs were able to do yesterday to Derrick Henry, it's going to be a lot different than what they're going to do. It has to be a lot different because they're going up just a, against a totally different offensive line and offensive line scheme for that matter. And I think the game, it should be a good game. I hope it's a good game. I hope it's fascinating. And I'm going to say this right now. I'm rooting big time for Kansas City. Hard. I've never liked the Niners. And it's not even a thing about them getting this sixth Super Bowl to match with New England and Pittsburgh. I mean, who cares about that? As long as they don't surpass Pittsburgh, especially the Steelers. But my personal biases aside, the Niners are just going to be tough. And even watching that Chief game yesterday and you just see how explosive they are and that they're able to rack up points like a video game, the Niners are just sound on both sides of the ball. And I've been down this road before. When you look at teams with the high-octane offense or the obviously the very good offense go up against a very stout defensive team, usually the defensive teams win. And when I think of the first game that comes to mind was Super Bowl Thirty Six, Oakland and Tampa Bay. Remember, Oakland had all those weapons. And I understand you had an aging Jerry Rice and Rich Gannon was at the peak of his powers there, although it was late in his career, but he was still very good. And if I'm not mistaken, may have been MVP of the league that year, 2002, or maybe not. Maybe I'm overthinking it. But a lot of people thought that offense was just going to run up and down the field against a very good, an all-time underrated defensive team. Now, are they up there with the 85 Bears and the 2000 Ravens? No, but when you have Warren Sapp, Derek Brooks, John Lynch, a very good pass rusher in Simeon Rice, Rondé Barber. I mean, you got you had some very stout defensive players on that team. And as we saw, they had three defensive touchdowns in the game. They knew all the Raiders' signals because of John Gruden in his days as coach of the Raiders, and we know what happened there. Now, we get that that was an advantage, That's not to say you're going to have that same advantage here with Casey in San Francisco, but at the same time, the defense, as stout as they've been, and their secondary could be had, the Niners. Their front seven, though, is loaded. When you have the line of DeForest Buckner and Eric Armstead throwing Nick Bosa, the linebackers are good, highlighted by Fred Warner. And like I said, the secondary, you know, Emmanuel Mosley, he's long, he's good, but you could throw on him, I think. And that's the one thing that the Chiefs can do is throw the ball. So it's going to be fascinating from that regard. But those are just some early thoughts. I'm not going to get into previews and anything like that. I'll wait for that to next week. So obviously we have a lot of time between now and then. So that's what you got there for yesterday. That's your takeaways. And I didn't get a quick takeaway for the Titans. This is a great learning lesson for this team. Nobody thought that they would get this far. And they play in a division that from one year to the next, you just never know. You know, obviously with Houston... Being the front runner there, you would think, with the quarterback, I don't love the coach, but then also with the Colts trying to come back from the retirement of Andrew Luck, and even though they had a great start with Jacoby Brissett, but they certainly faltered down the stretch, you would think the Titans will be heard from again, you would think, over the course of the next couple of years. So just a great stretch by them. I mean, think about this. They went into the postseason, they knocked off the defending champ, and they also knocked off the regular season champ for what that's worth. The team that had the best record in the NFL. And for a quarter and a half, they had a 10-point lead. And then they just ran out of gas. So that's what you got there with the Titans. As far as uh, other news and notes in the league, and you had quite a few off-the-field stuff over the uh, last seven days or so. The first one was the retirement of Luke Keekley, the Carolina Panther all-pro linebacker who retired at 28. <clears throat> Excuse me, we all know he had a concussion history. Played in the league seven years played in the Super Bowl 50 that year against the Broncos and had that teary goodbye through Twitter. It was about a three-minute video if you haven't seen it. I guess you just go to the Carolina Panthers 
uh, homepage or team page on Twitter and you'll see it. But that was one that came down very surprising. And we've seen this over the years with players, whether your name is Calvin Johnson, whether your name is Patrick Willis, whether your name is even on a much, much, much lesser scale as far as big-time name is concerned, Chris Borland, the former 49er linebacker who played, I believe, two years, and then he decided to retire at 24. He says, I don't want to beat up my body, and I still want to have my brains intact. I don't want them scrambled. And so he walked away. So it comes as it came as a surprise to me at first, but after five seconds thinking about it, you understand why. He doesn't want to be one of those guys who actually left everything on the field, and as he walks off the field, you don't know what type of condition he's going to be in. And that's not just physically. That's, of course, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, etc., so good for him. Much props to him that goes out to what he did as far as his decision to retire. And may he live a long, healthy, fulfilled life from here on out. Also, Larry Fitzgerald, Arizona Cardinals, signing up for his 17th season in the NFL. We all know Lock Hall of Famer. We understand the type of person he is, what he's contributed to the game, etc. Well, he's going to come back for one more year, which is good. You would think this may be his final go-around. But uh, considering he plays a slot, and he's been healthy all these years and seems like he's the opposite of Luke Keekley. Has everything intact. So uh, we'll see him back on those sidelines for the Cardinals. And then you had the Centennial Class with the Hall of Fame. Now, next weekend, not this coming, the following, the day before the Super Bowl, you'll have the uh, finalists announced for the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which will be headlined by Troy Polamalu, Reggie Wayne, John Lynch. Those are the three guys that you think that may be able to get in on their first uh, crack. I think Lynch, this is probably a second, but I know Polamalu and Wayne, this is their first shot at getting into the hall. But as far as the centennial class is concerned, you have Paul Tagliabue get in, which eh, could be a little controversial, which for, just to get into a little bit, obviously you had the back end of the concussion thing that was hanging over his head. Also, he had to come in to bail out. I understand had to bail out a one Roger Goodell with the whole bounty gate deal. But uh, considering that Tagliabue, who came after the legendary Pete Rozelle, certainly didn't come anything close to what Rozelle was, but he made it into the Hall of Fame. And I understand he put in 18 years, and the game has progressed mightily since then. But a lot of people could question whether or not he's a Hall of Famer. Harold Carmichael. And the one thing I liked about Carmichael, not only because he was tall, and he played on those Philly teams there, the 70s and into early 80s, but he was the first guy, when you think about it, and this is minor at the at the end of the day, but the first thing I think about is he was the first wide receiver to have one of his numbers you know, in the teens. Where back then, you saw no players wear any numbers in the teens. It was from 80 to 89. Well, he had 17 for some reason, and obviously there's a zillion players in the league who have you know, numbers in their teens. But not only that, he did have a very productive career. Is it Hall of Fame worthy? Well, you got to also remember, the numbers that they put up then are much different than what they put up now. If you project the numbers then and now, I'm sure they'd be close to Hall of Fame numbers. But considering that he didn't win and he wasn't the most dominant wide receiver of his era, it was sad because Drew Pearson, a guy that played in his division and one of his contemporaries, he didn't make it, was not elected, and certainly was very bitter about that. Uh, and unfortunate because Drew Pearson obviously was a was an excellent wide receiver and made a bunch of big clutch plays in his career, but uh, he fell short. And then also Steve Sable, which to me was a no-brainer. I mean, Steve Sable, is his dad founded NFL Films, and then Steve Sable carried it on until his unfortunate passing years ago. So to me, that, that is a L-O-C-K to have him be a part of the whole. So that's what you have there with the football people. And then, of course, next week we'll get all into the game analysis, so on and so forth. And then, of course, uh, my early prediction 
as to who will win. Now, college football, I'm not going to really get into the national title game of last week. Again, it's already been seven days, and people, I'm sure, already forgot about it because everybody's still chewing on the NFL stuff. But LSU, they were down 17-7 themselves, just like the Titans were yesterday, but they came roaring back to the point where they took the lead 28-17 and a half, and then they didn't look back from there. They ended up winning 42-25. But unfortunately, the story of the game, or not even the game, the story of the night was afterwards where Odell Beckham Jr. was not only handing out money to the players where it was confirmed by quarterback Joe Burrow that he was handing out money. A lot of people thought it was counterfeit. A lot of people thought that, ah, it was just fake money. It was just being silly. But no, it was actually real. To the amounts of how much he was handing out, who knows? But obviously that is a uh, violation for the NCAA as far as their bylaws are concerned. So obviously that's not a good look. But then on top of that, you had a warrant out for his arrest for slapping the backside of a security guard in the locker room down in the Superdome in New Orleans where the game was being played. And they were looked like at first there was going to be charges pressed on him, but the security guard just waved it off. It was no big deal. It was actually caught on video. So Odell Beckham Jr., who cannot get out of his own way to save his own life, puts himself back in the news and got away with a big one there because uh, who knows what's going to happen with the handing out of the money, what that's going to do as far as the effect of uh, some of these kids. Now, of course, there's going to be some people, oh, they should take away the title. I'm sure you're going to get that, which that's something we'll get to in a minute. But that's what you have there as far as uh, OBJ is concerned. And now we can put football in a rearview mirror and talk about the the news of the week. I mean, it took up the whole week because of the events and the chain of events in Major League Baseball. Now, when I signed off last week, literally an hour after I posted the podcast online, word came down from Major League Baseball that the commissioner suspended the GM, Jeff Lunau, and the manager, A.J. Hinch of the Houston Astros, one year due to the investigation and everything that was compiled where they found video equipment, monitors, cameras, things of that nature, where baseball said, "Uh uh-uh, we found this out. You're going to be sitting on the shelf for a year, and that was that. And we thought well, it was going to be a year. I mean, I came on the air. If you listen to the podcast, I said they're probably going to get a year. We heard that the word on the street was that the league was going to impose a harsh punishment on the Astros, and pretty much I thought it was going to be a year. You know, 80 games wasn't going to do the trick. I don't think they were going to give them two years. So I figured, all right, give them the season, and that's it. Well, that's what came down. But then an hour after that, The owner of the Astros, Jim Crane, said, okay, well, I could do you one better. Because of what was founded, and it was unbeknownst to him, he decided to say, here are pink slips for Mr. Lunau and Mr. Hinch. Goodbye, good riddance, see you later. And the only thing I could think of at that point, because where Alex Cora, who was part of that 2017 championship season of the Houston Astros, and his name was attached to that, as well as a one... Carlos Beltran, who was a player on the team, but at the same time, at that point in his career, he was more of a DH slash pinch hitter. So he didn't have a lot of impact as far as what he did on the field is concerned, considering that he was already in his 20th season and it was not going to be an outfielder, or if he did, it was sparingly at best. I just thought right then and there, I said, well, Cora's going to be gone. And then the following day, on top of that, word came down that the 2018 Red Sox have been accused of cheating for using their replay room at Fenway Park throughout the course of the regular season. And when that came down, I said, there's no way Cora's going to make it considering 
the owner, Jim Crane, fired A.J. Hinch. So then on Tuesday, once the word came down, Red Sox, Alex Cora, mutually part ways, he's gone. So for those who follow me on social media, especially on Facebook Live, and for those who didn't watch it, you could go ahead and watch it whenever you like. I'd uh, feel free to go ahead and do so. But I had to come on Facebook Live because I didn't want to have a podcast. I figured let me just go out there and hold myself accountable on video to say, if Cora and Hinch are gone, then the Mets must absolutely let go of Carlos Beltran. They had to. And I'm in the minority because as I found out in the days after that, leading up to Thursday, when the press conference came out where Carlos Beltran and the Mets agreed to part ways, and I had the pom-poms out for it. And there's nothing against Carlos Beltran by any stretch. But how I look at it was twofold. One was, if he was going to survive as being manager of the Mets, he had to do, A, come out to the media, him, Brody, Jeff Wilpon, and have a two-hour press conference before spring training. They had to spill the beans on everything. So that meant, Carlos Beltran, what was your part in this activity with the Astros were you planning on implementing it with the Mets hey get it all out and then even with Brody and Jeff to say did you know about this where in the press conference Brody who was he was awful in the press conference I'm sorry for him to not want to ask Carlos Beltran after he found out now granted he was hired before this all came out I believe it was November 11th so for the Mets to just kind of turn a blind eye to just defer to Major League Baseball once this story came out and for them to just wait for the process and not confront Carlos Beltran back then was just terrible on their part because they weren't doing their job. That's not to say that they had to sit him down and find out every minute detail at that point and then fire him, no. But they could have done their homework and due diligence to say, Carlos, please let us know everything that you did, what type of involvement, et cetera, et cetera. No, they waited until after all this came out with the Astros and then the Red Sox and then they get to this point. So where now, they would have left themselves high and dry. Now they're going to be scrambling looking for a manager when they could have done this before. But that's number one. If they weren't going to come clean to the press, if they weren't going to come clean, and especially not the New York media is, if they weren't going to have that, whatever it was, an hour, two hour press conference just to spill the beans where he could have survived this manager, that's one. Because if he would have been honest, forthright, etc., and the Mets would have kept him as manager, then that would have been fine. But we both know that is not the case. Or that would not have been the case, I should say. And then number two is then let's just say they had this brief press conference where they just make a statement and Beltran's the manager. Oh, well, that happened when he was in Houston. Right now he's manager of the Mets. We'll comply with Major League Baseball if there's going to be suspension, blah, 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 yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. And then what's going to happen is that the Mets get off to a slow start then everybody's going to think that, well, of course, he's, they're having a bad start because he's not cheating. And if the Mets get off to a flying start and obviously are in the thick of a pennant race, they're going to think that he is cheating. So it would have been a no-win situation for the Metsies, and we would have to deal with that all summer long and as long as he was the manager of the team. And that's where you have it. And I, to me, it was the right move. I'm sorry. I know other people thought that, oh, geez, how could you think that? That happened back then. That's not going to apply here. No, 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 no. We know the Mets could wreck a winning lottery ticket. You know, they won't cash it in. They'll, oh, it was thrown out in the garbage. It actually was dropped in the shredder. I mean, that's the Mets for you. So by them doing this was an absolute boon. Because despite the fact that spring training is three weeks from now, 
whether they're going to go to their second candidate that they had in waiting, whether that be Eduardo Perez, or some of the reports that they're actually interested in Dusty Baker. Let's get it cracking. Let's find a manager. Let's do this quick, fast, in a hurry. If you ask me, I think they should go the more veteran route. I would think Buck Showalter. Do I want Dusty Baker? I'd say no. I would choose Mike Sosha before. And I get that it's an analytic game, and we understand that they want to collaborate, meaning Brody and the nerds in the front office there for the Mets to influence or at least certainly get in the ear of the manager. So when you have an old school guy like Buck Showalter or even Mike Sosha, chances are they don't want to hear that. They want to write up the line of card as they see fit, and that is it. But who knows? Maybe they want to get back in the game, especially Sosha. He's been out for the last couple of years. Maybe he'll do whatever it takes. But hey, sign him two years and maybe for an option with a third. And if it doesn't work out, then you could go back and hire a young whippersnapper off of a bench coach from some team out there in the major leagues. That's it. Doesn't get any simpler than that. So that's what you got there with the baseball as far as that's concerned. Where the Red Sox are going to go for manager, they're pretty much in the same boat as the Mets and the same thing for the Astros. Now, of course, I could care less about those other two teams. With the Mets, I say hire the older guy for the two years. But we all know they want to have continuity. But you'll have the continuity with the older guy because he'll be able to impart his knowledge, his wisdom, especially social who won a World Series. Granted, it was almost 20 years ago, but still... Better that than to have a guy who's a bench coach or even Eduardo Perez who doesn't have managerial experience and he may be the nicest guy in the world and can certainly swoon and croon and do whatever it is that he can to make the players feel comfortable and certainly be lovey-dovey, etc. But to me, it's not about that. It's about winning baseball games. It's about managing. It's about managing these talents and getting the best out of their abilities. Not trying to be babysitter, psychiatrist, etc. So that's just me. So that's what you got there with the baseball. And uh, let me see what else happened in baseball over the past week. Well, Josh Donaldson signed with the Twins, which I know for some Twin fans, they scratch their heads because one thing they don't lack in their team is power. And although they added another bat to their lineup, which is good, but we all know they need starting pitching. And even though getting Homer Bailey a couple of weeks back, and also they got one of the pitcher as well, off the top of my head, it deludes me. But I, I know I had mentioned there are two guys that they're more starting fours, maybe on a good day of three but certainly not a pitcher that's going to make you shake in your boots or you're going to check the scouting report on how to go about attacking this pitcher come the season. But uh, that's what you have there with the baseball. Let me see anything else as uh, before I move on. Obviously, there's a ton of other stuff to get to before we uh, before I sign off. Uh, no, that's pretty much it with the baseball as uh, we're just now a little bit more than three weeks away from pitchers and catchers reporting and uh, just amazing to think on this chilly day here in the Northeast, which is about wind chill, I think is in the teens. Baseball is pretty much right on the horizon. Uh, let's see, baseball. No, so that's what you got there. Oh, one last thing. If you want me to throw this, I, I didn't mention this. Going back to the whole scandal. So Houston, I know the there were some comments that were made from the Astros Fan Fest, which they usually do annually before they break for spring training where they did get some comments from Josh Reddick, Jose Altuve, and Alex Bregman. And pretty much what it was, it was just a joke. And you know they weren't going to say much. You know, Reddick obviously laid low. Didn't really want to get into it. Didn't even want to comment about it. Jose Altuve said, oh, everything's going to be fine. We're going to go back to the World Series this year. We're going to show and improve. All right, easier said than done. And Alex Bregman pretty much took the same tact as what Josh Reddick did. And listen, you can understand that he's going to do so now. It's just a couple of days afterwards. That's probably not the time or place, which is fine. But I will say this. If Jim Crane, who now is running the team because they don't have a GM as of yet, 
he should go to every one of his players in the locker room right now. And I get, he'd probably save it for the GM, but he should go to every one of his players in the locker room right now to say, okay, you guys just got to spill the beans. Just rip the Band-Aid right off. Don't, have, don't worry about what the press is going to say. Just answer all the questions one time out, and that's it. And after that, just wipe your hands, and they won't ask ever again. Because the minute you start dodging, the minute you start pussyfooting on some of these answers, then you know they're just going to continue to come back and get you throughout the course of the season. And if somebody somehow, some way, asks you around Memorial Day, if you're five games on the 500, hey, do you think this has to do it? Then you can just look at them and say, next question. I answered everything back in the spring. You guys were there. Leave me alone. Next question. And that's it. And I know Jack McDowell came out and made some comments about Tony La Russa, about installing a camera in center field. And he said that he was the instigator throughout all this. So, now listen, he never won anything with Chicago. I understand that now with what he had done in Oakland and even in St. Louis, winning those two World Series the way he did, does that have anything to do with this? I mean, nobody's going to know unless somebody outs him on it. But just remember this. As an Oakland A manager in the late 80s and 1990, he went three straight years. He only won one World Series. And in the other two, they were prohibitive favorites to win. The 88 Dodger team, which without Kirk Gibson, they might as well have me playing third base. You know, they had Tracy Woodson, Mike Davis, Mickey Hatcher, Rick Dempsey was your catcher. I mean, the team had nobody. And then the 90 team was just Eric Davis and a bunch of ragamuffins. Even Paul O'Neill was on that team. But it was Eric Davis. It was Paul O'Neill. You know, Hal Morris was on that team. Chris Sabo. You know, Barry Larkin, of course. The young Barry Larkin was good. I mean, they had a couple of players, but again... Oakland was just more superior than everybody during that stretch. But, I mean, if they were cheaters, then they should have won all three. But we all know that's how the games work. So so that's what you had there with the comments made by Jack McDowell. Now, let's uh, turn our attention now to the NHL. It's weird. When the all these coaching changes that have taken place here over the last few months, and then the other day when I got a chance to look at Gerard Gallant, who was out in Vegas. Now, mind you, Vegas has only been around two and a half years. We all know they made it to the cup final the first year. And then last year, they got hosed on that high stick there, Joe Pavelski, where they were up 4-1 in the third period. And then they scored three power play goals and they lost in overtime. So here, they're off to a slow start. Now, they're still in the mix in the Pacific. You know, it's not as if they're 10 points back of the division. Now, we all know Calgary, also Arizona, Edmonton, Vegas. You know, all these teams are in the mix there and they're all separated by a couple of points. So for them to fire Gallant, I thought it was a little bit premature and maybe it was a little bit of a panic move. Now, I don't know if he was losing grip of the team. I just found that surprising considering that he's been there two and a half years and that the team wasn't flailing. You know, it wasn't Anaheim or LA. But at the same time, for them to let go of their coach and to bring in a guy like Peter DeBoer, who, as we both know, especially in this neck of the woods, was a New Jersey Devil coach, took his team to a final as well as the San Jose Sharks back in 2016 when they played the Pittsburgh Penguins. But it seems like it's been musical chairs with all these coaches where Peter Laviolette gets fired and then Josh Hines, another former Devil coach, gets plugged in there. All these retreads, it's kind of seeming going back and forth and being shuffled around the deck and moved from one city to the next. It's just weird how seven coaches over the span of three months? Now, if that was any other sport, you'd wonder what the hell's going on in the sport or with this league. And as bad as it is, think about this. There are 11 head coaches in the National Hockey League that have been with their teams for more than two seasons. So what does that mean? 11 more than two, so that everybody else is like one, two months, three weeks, or five minutes. Uh, it's just an uh, absolute joke when you think about it. But of course, it kind of gets swept under the rug because it is the NHL. It's the fourth out of the major four sports in the, you know, out of uh, all that's going on here in North America. 
But when I saw that, I just couldn't believe it. I said, another coach? So I had to do a little homework, and I got to see, you know, obviously Laviolette was gone, Bill Peters in Calgary, Jim Montgomery in Dallas. Now, of course, they got left off the ice stuff, disciplinary reasons, so they had to go. Uh, Mike Bobcock in Toronto. We talked about Hines in New Jersey. It's crazy. All these coaches are just come and go. Then you also had uh, just a couple other news and notes. I know Sidney Crosby, now it's interesting, I didn't mention this last week. Because remember, he was out all that time with the core muscle injury that he had. And we just came back during the week against Minnesota where he scored a goal and two assists after out being you know, two months on the shelf. And then to think that Pittsburgh has propelled themselves into second place in the Metropolitan Division. Now, I mentioned they've been coming on a lot here recently. And even with the Islanders certainly taking a few steps back here, Pittsburgh has now thrusted them into the not only the playoff mix, but maybe... As a team to be reckoned with. Who knows if this will be a stretch where they may look back in the regular season, come postseason, to say, hey, this is what we needed to get to where we want to go. Or has this been too much of a push for, let's say, that older core, whether it's Crosby, Chris Letang, who's also been hurt, Evgeny Malkin, etc., where they push the pedal to the metal too much to the point where who knows how far they'll get to the postseason. Well, obviously, that'll be answered down the road, but just something to think about when you move forward. And then the Bruins suffered a big loss with the concussion there a couple nights ago with Tuka Rask, their goalie. So the Bruins were lost yesterday in Pittsburgh to the Penguins. We'll see how that factors down the stretch as uh, obviously Boston has had a very good year and trying to get back to a cup final as they did so last year. Patrick Kane, Chicago Blackhawks, scored his 1,000 point as a Blackhawk. He's the 90th player in NHL history to do so. That was against Winnipeg yesterday, so congratulations to him. And then you also have the All-Star game next weekend, which is in St. Louis where we'll see what players won't participate. They're also thinking about adding, this is going to sound crazy. They're actually thinking about adding an event to shoot goals from the stands. So it's almost like Top Golf. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Top Golf, depending on where you live. I know there's uh, branches, or I should say there are locations in Florida, South Florida, also in Dallas. I actually know somebody who works with Top Golf. But as weird as this may sound, that they're actually be, let's say they're on the second level in the stands, and they're going to shoot pucks into a net. From whatever it is, 200 feet up. If you have to resort to an event like that, then just scrap the event. I mean, why are you wasting time? Just do the normal skills competition, you know, hit the targets on the goal and use the pylons and all that, or the speed, skating, you know, the fastest uh, skater, the hardest shot. Just stick with that. Well, why do you have to do something hokey is go on the second level or the upper tank of the building and try to shoot pucks into a net? Uh, what is that going to do? Uh, that to me is just a waste of time. And then also one thing I didn't mention last week too, so my apologies for that, is Pekka Rinna, the Nashville goalie who actually scored a goal. I didn't realize that 12 goalies prior to him actually have scored goals. Now, I know Billy Smith was the first one to do so. Not that he shot an internet. That was because of Rob Ramage, the Colorado Rockies defenseman at the time, where Billy Smith was the last player on the other team to touch the puck, and then Ramage was trying to feed it to the point. He actually went past the point, shot it down the ice, and into the net, so it was credited to Billy Smith. We've seen Ron Hextall do it a couple of times. Actually, he was very good with the with stick handling, so he's able to score a couple of goals like that. Once, I think the first one he did was against the Boston Bruins. Another time he did it in the postseason against the Capitals, I believe. And then there have been 10 other goalies after that that have scored goals. Where have I been to not even know that 12 goalies or 10 goalies since then have uh, scored goals? So that was actually an achievement to see Rena do that, and uh, good for him. But that's what you got there with the NHL and pretty much the NHL status quo. I'll get into a little bit more about them next week, of course, as we start to say goodbye to the NFL season and we get deeper into the 
winter sports, as I've said time and time again. And speaking of winter sports, the NBA right now, as Martin Luther King, you have a lot of games today. Philly and the Nets here in the backyard at 3 o'clock. Knicks are on the road. They usually play at the Garden on MLK Day, but not today. So we'll take an eye on the NBA. The big highlight game tonight is the Lakers. They're on the East Coast here for the week as they play the Celtics tonight. And the Celtics have been reeling here a little bit. Kemba, I know, has been uh, nicked up. Celtics uh, did not play well against Phoenix at home Saturday night. They got destroyed against Milwaukee there on Thursday. I understand the score was 128-123, but at one point, two points in the game. They were down by you know 27 and 20-some-odd points. So they certainly did not, uh, I don't want to say they didn't show up, but they certainly did not play well. And now they have the Lakers coming into their building night, the first of two matchups, where the Lakers, after tonight, they play in the Garden on Wednesday, in Brooklyn on Thursday, and then your Saturday night showcase is them in Philadelphia. So Lakers will be here on the East Coast, and I'm sure they'll probably head to Cleveland after that because just recently the Cavs were playing out in L.A., so you would think a LeBron reunion to his old stomping grounds is uh, pretty much on the horizon. Also, the other big news in the NBA is Zion Williamson. It looks like he's going to finally get to play Wednesday night against San Antonio. And I believe ESPN has already flexed one of the other games out, whatever the early game, the 8 o'clock game is going to be. Well, guess what? Zion is certainly going to be front and center in his first game. And there comes a point where they, I get he's the investment. I get you got to protect him. He, we understand how with his body type, he's a big guy. And with knees, we understand you got to take the utmost caution. But at the end of the day, he is 19 years old. So we get that he probably plays at one speed. And that one speed could be very dangerous. And that's one we saw with Blake Griffin. After he suffered his knee injuries, he didn't play in that first season. But we saw what happened afterwards. And of course, Zion is a different type of player than Blake Griffin. But still in the sense where he he could jump out of the gym, loves to dunk, very athletic. Especially in those early days of Blake Griffin. But you know what? The kid's got to play. You know, if he's been 100% for the last two weeks and they're just taking extra precaution, uh, for what? I know it's easy for me to say because I'm on the sidelines, but at the same time, you know, the league wants to see this kid. New Orleans has been on the schedule a thousand times, it seems, since the start of the year, and pretty much, I'm sure, and if not all, most of the games they've lost. So let's finally, front and center, get a chance to see this Ballyhooed rookie who obviously everybody looks at as a generational talent, and not to say he's going to do it all in one night. He's probably only going to play 12 to 15 minutes, but just to get an opportunity to feast our eyes on him on a pro level is something that myself and a lot of the Sports fans and certainly the NBA fans are looking forward to. So let's see if that happens there on Wednesday night. And then lastly with the NBA stuff, I understand Kyrie Irving can't get out of his own way. But for the comments that he made the other day, I don't know what was worse. The comments he made after the game on Wednesday when he said that the when he looks around the room that there's a glaring need for one or two more pieces if we want to get to that championship level. And then he proceeded to call out, oh, you know, myself, KD, Spence, meaning Spencer Dinwiddie, GT, Garrett Temple. You know, he mentions a, f- a couple of the players, and then he forgets Joe Harris. He forgets Jared Allen, who's a mainstay in the middle, and he's one of those old-school centers. And we get that the NBA isn't what it once was back in yesteryear, where a center meant something. But he doesn't go ahead and do that. He does say that. But then two days later, in his presser, right before practice, he comes out and says, all right, I may have overstated it a little bit but the bottom line is is that I'm great and I know my team could be great once we get great players have a little humility my guy please we all know you're great let everybody else tell you that you're great there's no need for you to puff your chest out or for you to try to feel so insecure and it sounds like when somebody says that there's a little insecurity there and we understand that his talent is bar none 
We know the type of ball handler he is. We know the type of penetrator he is. We know the even type of shooter he is. We know that he's a great player and a great talent. But he certainly doesn't have to tell us that, number one. And number two, the one thing that is just obvious as the light of day is that he's not a leader. We saw that in Boston last year. We're seeing that now. And we get that he's a focal part of this team, not only because of the contract, but of course, his immense talent. But he's only played in about 10 games this year. And he's been out the last... 26 prior to, I guess, the four or five games that he's played since then. So not to say he has to pipe down, but hey, one game at a time, let's take it easy. Let's not say I'm great and I'm the best thing that the NBA has ever seen as far as a ball handler is concerned. It's just too much. And I like Kyrie. I've never been a big fan of his, but he's a guy that you'd want to go into a foxhole considering there's no shot that he's afraid to take and that he's as dynamic as an offensive player as we've seen, especially from a guy that size. But he does need to pipe down about, not only is just his comments on his team, but just about himself. All right, that's like me coming on here and be like, yeah, I please, I destroy Stephen A. Smith. I'm better than everybody. I know I'm great. I, nobody wants to hear that. Who wants to hear that? Yeah, to me, it was just a joke. And it's just sad because I think there's a belief inside of him that he feels that he is a leader. But obviously, he has not shown it in his career here, especially after he left Cleveland. And it still resonates today that he is far from that guy. So, he is more of a Robin than he is a Batman. And we understand he's going to be Batman now, considering that Kevin Durant is not walking through that building at any point this year. But come next year, he's definitely going to be Robin. And KD is going to be the spokesman of that team. So, that's what we got there with the NBA. And now, quickly, just some things to wrap up. College basketball, he had Duke losing twice last week. Clemson was one of the games that they lost to on the road. And then they lost at home to Louisville. So, Duke, which is ranked second in the country, they certainly have dropped down a little bit. Gonzaga still your number one. And uh, college basketball, again, as I said last week, and we're pretty much going to wait till March to have this all unfold, but it is going to be wide open come tournament time. And we will probably see the cream rise to the top, but at the same time, you would not be surprised if some of these number ones and twos in these brackets will exit early as opposed to staying late. But watch, for everybody thinking that it's going to be topsy-turvy, unpredictable, you may get fours in the final four, or you may get a, a six seed or a 12 seed, make it to a championship game. Watch it be chalk or mostly chalk, and then we'll be talking about this for naught. So we'll have that to uh, certainly discuss down the road as uh, we get deeper into the college basketball season. Believe it or not, Jay Real is going to talk a little UFC, and I didn't get to watch the Conor McGregor fight, but I did see it was only 40 seconds. So if you heard the bell and you got up, oh, let me go run and get a beer. By the time you got back to your seat, the fight was over. So Cowboy Cerrone, who not only took a couple of shoulder strikes to the chin, but he also got a roundhouse kick to the right jaw, which pretty much did him in. And everybody knows I'm not a UFC guy. Uh, What could I say? There isn't anything I could add to it. The only reason why I bring him up because we all know Conor McGregor. He's still a magnet. He's still a guy that's going to bring eyeballs to the sets. I can't tell you about any of the other fighters where I know John Jones has been marked in controversy in the past and Nate Diaz who beat McGregor a couple years ago and all the other MMA fighters that are out there. But we all know Conor McGregor. He is the guy. He's the Babe Ruth. And I know Babe Ruth's probably rolling over in his grave as I say this, but as small as the sport is, he's still the main attraction. He's still the box office. He's the one that everybody's going to look to the Look to whether you love him, hate him, despise him, loathe him, or just want to wrap your arms around him. Him, by winning that fight the way he did the other night, certainly is going to bring back a lot of juice 
to him, his matches, and to any of his opponents. So that's just something to look out for moving forward. And then the Australian Open. That's right. Australian Open has begun. Coco Koff, who beat Venus Williams in the uh, Wimbledon last year, upsets her again. I don't know if it's much of an upset now, considering that Venus is what? She's got to be pushing 40 right now. But she was the first one, or the first big name to fall down under. Serena won her match earlier, as well as Roger Federer. So they're just getting started down under. And we all know the just the horror that's going on down there with all the fires and the smoke. And right now, it's not really affecting the area where the tournament's being played. But they're certainly keeping an eye, they're keeping an eye on it and monitoring it as, we, as they go. So who knows if that's going to be a factor as the tournament starts to get a little bit deeper here. I mean, they're just getting started. And we know they have the enclosures there in some of those stadiums. But of course, they can't have all the matches in the, the indoor facilities. So that's something that uh, Australia and I'm sure the sports world will keep an eye on to see what that will do to affect them over the course of the next uh, two weeks. So that's what we got there with the Australian people. And uh, let's get to my hero and zero of the week. My hero of the week was another retirement in the NFL. And it's one Antonio Gates, the former San Diego slash LA Charger who at 39 years old, career leader in receptions for the Chargers at 955, also yards 11,841, and even more impressive, the 116 touchdowns. To me, he's a lock Hall of Famer. He was certainly, Tony Gonzalez was number one in his generation, and number two, you could say Antonio Gates. I understand there may be a fraction of people, especially in uh, Dallas, and the Cowboy fans alike will probably say Jason Witten could be number two on that list, but... Antonio Gates was a dominant tight end. Now, again, he wasn't more of the blocking tight end that we've seen in this day and age, whether your name is Rob Gronkowski or even, as I mentioned earlier, George Kittle. But still, he was a basketball player at Kent State. He was a guy who loved to get in position on the field and even block out his opponents to try to catch balls. Certainly not fleet of foot as he got later in his career, but was certainly very smart. And his football IQ was off the charts. So he finally calls it a career at the age of 39. And sure, Kenton will be knocking on the door in the next five years. So my hero of the week is Antonio Gates. And I kind of hate to rain on this guy's parade because I'm sure he was exuberant. He was happy considering that he was traded from Seattle to Kansas City. But that was a one Frank Clark, the defensive end of the Chiefs, where his postgame on the field interview was just an absolute disgrace. I mean, every other word was an F-bomb. You couldn't even make out what he heard because it was just bleeped left and right. And we understand you're excited. You're exhilarated, everything that's going on. And you probably can't even put into words your emotions, but obviously the first question was stopping Derrick Henry and he did so. And I'm not going to repeat what he said, but then even after that, uh, you know, we're MF and AFC champions and now we're going to MF and win the Super Bowl. That's all you heard. And it's just could have been a little bit more professionalism and composure on his part. But you know what? Hey, I couldn't find any other zero of the week because if I did, I certainly would have put him up there. But Frank Clark, you take the title this week, my man. You are my zero of the week. So that will do it here for this podcast. Just a programming note, people. I'm going to have another podcast later this week. That's right. On Wednesday, I got my man, my mellow, my one-time radio partner, and blood. JD will join me. This was a very fun podcast. And every time I get together with him, it's fantastic. He's a huge Cowboy Red Sox fan. So you know where I'm going at, people. Yes, we're going to recap this whole Red Sox scandal. Where are the Red Sox going to look for managers? As well as Jerry Jones, we talk about a lot. As far as now with Mike McCarthy in the mix, will Jerry Jones be that guy that's going to be looming over Mike McCarthy's shoulder? We also talk about the Celtics. We chime in on what's happening there with Boston recently, as well as the Bruins. 
which are all of his favorite teams. So we chatted for about an hour, and it's just good, fun stuff between two just diehard sports fans. And it's a very spirited, very passionate conversation that I'm sure you'll enjoy. So definitely look out for that on Wednesday as the J-Rules podcast continues to move along forward. And if you dug what I had to say throughout the course of this podcast, or if you listen to any of the backlog, the 108 podcast, I understand a lot of that stuff is perishable, but if you go back in the archives, I had interviews with NBA player Kenny Anderson, as well as Kentucky player who was the MOP of the 1996 Final Four, and that was one Tony Delk. I also had Jordy Day, who was the filmmaker of the Bob Probert Tough Guy movie, which was very fascinating. For those who don't know who Bob Probert is, you definitely want to YouTube him, and he was the greatest of all time as far as uh, hockey fighters are concerned. And then, of course, LeVon Kirkland, just over the Christmas holiday, I had him talking about his Steeler career, among many other things that happened not only in Pittsburgh in his career. Any of those, please feel free to go ahead and subscribe, leave a rating, post a review, all that, people, because what that's going to do is just increase the visibility of this podcast amongst the many others out there. And in turn, we just want to generate interest and hope to generate interest to get more guests on. So whether that means former athletes or even current athletes for that matter, sports writers, broadcasters, bloggers, whatever it may be, I'm working behind the scenes people independently. That's right. I don't have a team. I don't have marketing. I do this all by myself. And speaking of marketing, you'd also check out any of my posts on Instagram which is J-Reels, J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z. Last week, I posted my first ever commercial, if you want to look at it that way, or even a promo for that matter, about the podcast. I also could be found on Twitter, J-Reels1, just a number, the J-Reels podcast on my Facebook fan page, and the J-Reels podcast at gmail.com if you want to send an email. But you could also hit me up in a DM or in my inbox on any of my social media accounts. Please feel free with any questions, comments, criticism, praise, whatever it may be. I'm open to it all. And obviously, I post on my social media sites as well as video whatever it may be depending on how important it is and instead of putting it on the podcast i certainly will put it up on my any of my feeds there that you can find me on instagram facebook and twitter and then lastly if you want to contribute to the podcast as far as advertising even equipment production marketing a bunch of different things that i have going on here you could do so at Patreon, that's www.p as in Paul, A-T as in Tom, R-E-O-N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels podcast. Again, that will go 100% to everything that has to do about this podcast production wise, even marketing that I'm planning to do, some advertising that I'm hoping to do as well, just to kind of get the name out there because social media, although it helps and word of mouth with your help people, I'll be immensely thankful and show a lot of gratitude toward that. Because each and every week, as much as I love to do this, I can't do this without your help. So I, again, I thank you twice more than once as I deliver everything that's happening on the world of the diamond, the world of the ice, the world of the gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J-Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, to South Central, to South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time, this coming Wednesday, look out for it, my conversation with J.D., talking about everything that's happening in the world of sports. Until then, on the flip, baby.